Linnaean. The Linnaean Society. The Linnaean Society of, of London. 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 Linnaean Society of London. Welcome to another episode of the Linnaean Podcast. Today we start on a November morning and the chill is undeniable. By the time I'm at the train station to make my way to Plasto in East London, I realise I'm unmistakably underdressed. The next station is London. I begin this podcast with a weather morning is because we are going to talk about the weather today and clouds. In particular, we're going to talk about cloud taxonomy, cloud names, and especially the man who saw patterns in the sky and drew distinctions. And for this reason, on this really windy winter day, I met with historian Richard Hamblin. Oh, hi, I'm Richard Hamblin. I teach English and creative writing at Birkbeck University of London. Uh, and I'm an environmental writer and historian uh, focusing really on the cultural cross-currents that flow between the arts and the sciences. And my first book, The Invention of Clouds, which came out in 2002, told the story of Luke Howard and his naming of clouds in, uh, in 1802 and the, and the various sort of cultural ramifications that flowed from that. Uh, and ever since, I've been busy writing other books about uh, clouds and weather and I've, my most recent publication was a book about the sea that came out last year. And we're also accompanied by Margaret Burr, a Tottenham and Cloud enthusiast, thanks to whom we're all standing here on Howard's Road in Plasto. A road that has been named after Luke Howard, as the street sign here reads, and I read it out, Luke Howard, 1772 to 1864, pharmacist, scientist, meteorologist, and namer of clouds, who lived nearby at Cheston House. Richard, um, what can you tell us about this road and this corner in particular? Yeah, so we're looking at the garden wall of Cheston House, which is the family home of Luke Howard. He moved here in 1796 with his uh, wife and young family. And he moved to Plasto to take over the running of a chemical manufactory down, down the road, literally down Howard's Road which is named after uh, Luke Howard. And it was here in the late 1790s that he began to really pay sustained attention to the sky. On his walks to and from work, the short walk, every morning, every evening, and he began to formulate in his mind this, this kind of strange observation that clouds have many different shapes, but very few basic forms. So we're, we're standing on Howard's Road, but we're also standing underneath Howard's sky, literally the patch of sky that he looked at day in, day out over a course of several years. I must say that though it is not an ideal day to be recording a podcast outdoors because of the high winds, it definitely is a great day for cloud watching. It's fantastic. This is a textbook sky. It's, it's as you say, it's windy. So the, the clouds are moving fast and changing shape fast. We've got some... Uh, cumulus humulus here, they're moving along, but if you watch the fringes of them, they start, uh, they start disintegrating as you watch. Luke Howard was a chemist and a meteorologist, sometimes referred to 
as the father of meteorology who proposed a system for naming clouds that exists even today. His now legendary paper named on the modifications of clouds was presented to a small London debating club for scientific thinkers between 1796 and 1807. Luke was a young man in his late 20s when he read his paper to a full room of science enthusiasts. His system was similar to the then newly popularized Linnaean classification system. But can clouds be pinned down to a strict regime? I asked Richard this question while we were walking the same path that Luke Howard walked from his house on Howard's Road to his chemical manufacturing unit down the same road. Richard, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the Linnaean system that existed at the time, um, which was fixed and which was one species, one name. And clouds don't seem to fall into that pattern. And it's really difficult to have a fixedness to the system. So how did how did he get over that? <laughs> Linnaean system, the binomial classification classification system which had been in place for some decades already and was a fantastically useful way of thinking about arranging uh, the natural world. So, uh, so something like uh, a grey heron, Ardea cinerea, it's got a it's got a family name and it's you know got a species name and you can identify and people around the world can quickly agree that they're looking at the same bird. But of course Birds don't change in front of you while you're naming them. And the problem that everybody had with clouds is that they don't stay still. They merge, they separate, they fall, they rise, they disappear as you're watching them. And the average lifespan of a cloud in summer is about 10 minutes. So you've got 10 minutes to name it <laughs> before it disappears in front of you. So this is why cloud naming had really kind of baffled everybody, really. And it's, it's interesting that in a most natural history uh, species, whether it's a, a bird or an animal or a plant, it's got a common name as well as a Latin name. So, you know, you can point to a, a grey heron and say, look, there's a grey heron. And, you know, even a, even a committed, you know, ornithologist isn't going to say, oh, look, there's an Ardea cinerea. <laughs> yeah. But clouds don't have that. It's interesting. They only really have their Latin names. And I think that's a, it's something to think about. Although I guess they could be a shark or a bird. Yeah, I mean, you can describe a, a cloud that looks like something else, but it's not naming its, yeah. its species. Whereas, so it was Luke Howard's fantastically flexible language of clouds that really answered that question of how do you name a transitional form in nature? It was also a lucky time for Howard, as there was a really important person in the audience at the Ascasian Society on that day. The same person published his paper in the journal Philosophical Magazine the following year, 1803. His friends, William Allen and others, set up this little, a little sort of scientific debating club, basically a little, a little unofficial polytechnic, which they called the Ascasian Society, from the Greek word for learning or training, uh, which met once a fortnight in Plough Court, which is the, the sort of head, head pharmacy that Luke Howard worked for. Um, and so once a fortnight on a borrowed horse, he would <laughs> plod his way into the city of London, which is six kilometers to the west, take, take about an hour. And he would listen to a lecture on galvanism, on the malleable properties of zinc, on laughing gas. They all got very high yeah, on laughing remember. gas. <laughs> on a whole range of scientific 
technical subjects, sometimes modern languages as well. They, they were really thinking about practical learning here. And Luke Howard had given a couple of talks before. He gave a talk on pollen. He gave a talk on uh, something else. But it was his, it was really his talk on the classification of clouds that caused quite a stir at the time and happened to be somebody in the audience who ran a scientific journal. The paper went on to create several ripples as it was serially translated into several European languages. In fact, Goethe, after reading the paper in German, had said that Luke Howard had found the missing link between ideas about nature and ideas about process. And this was a very specific time in history when Howard was trying to make sense of the sky. One could dabble in many sciences, use observational skills, write papers and present them at learned societies. All in all, it was a time when amateur naturalists could very well be recognized as scientists. And Howard was no different. Before he turned his eyes skywards, he was looking quite keenly at pollen. And he even presented a botanical paper titled Account of a Microscopical Investigation of Several Species of Pollen that was published in the Linnaean Society's Transactions. But the jump from studying pollen to meteorology is not something we hear of today. So I asked Richard, what was the scientific temperament of the time within which Luke was able to observe and record various natural phenomena? Like a lot of people in, in London at the time, Howard would spend his evenings going from one demonstration to another. I mean, every night of the week, you could have gone to see, you know, something being burnt, something being exploded, you know, something, you know, some uh, demonstration or other. It was a time of extraordinary new discoveries in science and, uh, and technology at the time. You know, incomparable to today in lots of ways. And the communication of that was incredibly rapid as well. So there's a, a fantastic example of um, a new element being isolated on a Tuesday afternoon at the Royal, at the, um, Royal Institution on Abermarle Street. And within two hours, there was a lecture on it. And it's public interest as well. And this whole, the idea of the, of the specialist, of the expert, is yet to really take hold. I mean, obviously people had particular interests that they, that they pursued, but the idea that you are a specialist, a micro-specialist in something, was, was, was some time away, really, and how it lived through the coming of that, you know, with the coming of the, the learned societies. But Howard's structuring of clouds wasn't the first. There have been earlier cloud classifications. It's not the first time. I mean, there's a lot of indigenous observations of clouds as well, but perhaps not quote-unquote scientific as we see it. So what was the state at that point? Yeah, so... I mean, obviously, people have observed and named clouds all around the world for hundreds of years. And there are lots of different names for clouds in lots of different world languages. Um, but in terms of kind of, you know, the Western scientific tradition, uh, there had been an attempt, in fact, the year before Luke Howard gave his lecture in 1802 with a French natural philosopher Jean-Baptiste Lamarck, who had come up with a, a series of names in French for, for cloud types. And they're, they're very descriptive words, you know, brumaire and so on. But the, but 
that didn't take off in the way that Howard's took off because Luke Howard was able to accommodate the fact that, that clouds are constantly changing in front of you. So, you know, we look at a cloud up here, maybe a, maybe a kind of a fluffy cumulus cloud that then joins up with its neighbors and produces uh, a, strata, a stratum of clouds. So we, that would then, then be named stratocumulus. So he, he created this very flexible language that was able to accommodate change and, uh, and you know, the, the way that clouds merge, they fall, they rise, they separate, they do all kinds, they're never at rest. And all of the previous attempts to name and classify clouds had failed to accommodate that essential changefulness of clouds. And that's where Howard's really simple insight, uh, you know, that, that's why it worked. It was really the first successful attempt to name you know, shape, mutable forms in nature. You know, it's a very elegant solution to that, to that problem in a way. And all, like I say, all previous attempts to name clouds had named them as static objects. And clouds are not static objects. They're not like butterflies or birds or plants that you can name them. And they're not going to change in front of your eyes while you're naming them. The problem with the cloud is you try and name it, and by the yeah. time you've named it, it's changed. You know, so, and that's where his mutable language of the skies really, um, you know, that, that's why it, it worked. What, what is it that got Howard interested in clouds in the first place? Yeah, so he would spend a lot of time looking out of his bedroom window at school, which happened to look out over the wide Oxfordshire plain behind Burford. And he would, as he says in his journal later, he would commit to memory the configurations of various patterns of sky and cloud he thought they were absolutely beautiful and fascinating. And there was a particular event in 1783, um, which was caused by the Lackey Fisher's eruption in Iceland, which caused the skies you know, incredible sunsets because it, it put a whole load of pollution up into the atmosphere, which spread south across Europe. Um, and it caused a huge amount of disquiet. But Luke, 10-year-old Luke Howard thought it was absolutely amazing. And he, was, he would kind of sketch the, these incredible sunsets, a bit like the Krakatoa sunsets in the following century. Um, and th you know, that was a huge event for, for Howard. And when he came back home as a sort of as an early teenager, before he was sent to Stockport for his apprenticeship, age of 15, he set up in the family garden at Stamford Hill a little meteorological observing station with a thermometer and a rain gauge and his mother called it Luke's Walk because Luke would walk there every morning. It's quite it's a nice image of a, of a young scientist-to-be, you know, really. But that was the beginning, really, of his uh, kind of autodidactic career. Howard was constantly looking for enlightenment for knowledge. Though he started as a young naturalist who just enjoyed paying attention and documenting nature's activities, clouds and weather meant a lot to him, intellectually and emotionally. His classification was very elegant. Um, while there may be endless shapes of clouds, there are only three basic families for which he used descriptive Latin words. Number one, cirrus, which meant fiber or lock of hair. Cumulus, meaning heap or pile and stratus, meaning layer or sheet. He could then extrapolate 
other clouds. So for you know, high wispy cirrus cloud joins up and descends, can be then called a cirrostratus. And you know, similar, similarly with the other one. So you have this kind of, you're moving the prefixes and suffixes around. Uh, and Latin was a very useful language for that because it's very prefix-driven language. Uh, and so Luke Howard's awful, boring school days learning, rote learning Latin actually came to be very, very helpful to him in later life. And now we are standing outside Luke Howard's house on Bruce Grove in Tottenham in North London. It is here that he spent the last 12 years of his life. And although it does have a blue plaque, the house is draped in scaffolding and tarpaulin, probably being readied for new housing. Richard and I stand next to the house in a nondescript parking lot, chatting about how Howard's 1802 paper created a lot of excitement among Romantic-era poets and artists. English poet Percy Shelley in 1820 wrote a wonderful poem, which takes you through all seven stages of cloud shapes, according to Luke Howard. It was taken up very quickly among scientists and artists as well, who got very excited by the idea that you know, something so evanescent, so formless and apparently shapeless could actually be named and understood. And John Constable, the painter, uh, spent two whole summers up on Hampstead Heath in 1821-1822 painting clouds and he owned a copy of Luke Howard's essay and he wrote all over it so we know that he, he read it very carefully. And there's a lovely image that you have Constable up on Hampstead Heath sketching clouds, writing the date and the time of those sketches in 1821, 1822, and just a few miles to the east, you've got Luke Howard in, in uh, Stratford and subsequently in Tottenham, looking up at exactly the same patch of sky at the same time on the same date. But not everybody agreed with his enthusiasm for cloud classification. A few artists of the time, including artist Caspar David Friedrich were opposed to the idea of fixing clouds or fitting them into a system. But, um, but not every artist and, and writer was, was so enthusiastic. So um, Goethe had asked a lot of artists of his acquaintance in Germany uh, to, to read Howard's essay and to think about applying meteorological understanding to their rendition of skies. And quite a few artists did that. But some didn't. Caspar David Friedrich um, actually refused to read the essay. He said, I'm not reading this. Um, what you're trying to do is basically kill the, the magic and the artistry of my, of my vision. You know, he said this, would be a, this is actually going to be damaging to, to romantic. I mean, he didn't, he didn't call it romantic art, but that's how we would think of it now. Art as a kind of expression of the self, of the soul. Today, the Cloud Atlas, which is published by the World Meteorological Organization, has 10 genera of clouds with various species, varieties, and supplementary features. But even in its current form, it still, in a sense, holds Howard's ideas of cloud boundaries. And cloud taxonomy is not over. Even today, cloud names are added. But how does that work? How does, how does one get a name added to the atlas? Do people submit ideas and a committee judges their merit? Are new names added every year? And, and why? There's a committee for everything. Yeah. So, um, so the first cloud committee was in, 18, in the 1890s that uh, put together 
the tenfold cloud classification that we now have today, which is of course based on Luke Howard's original seven-part classification. Um, and there have been additions to the cloud nomenclature and classification over the years. So, for example, in 1880, uh, Cumulonimbus was added, suggested by the German meteorologist um, Philip Weilbach, and that was accepted in the 1890s. And 1896 was the, the International Year of Clouds, uh, so described by the, uh, the first international sort of cloud um, organization, which is now the World Meteorological Organization, the WMO, based in Geneva. And essentially, when I first started getting interested in clouds and Luke Howard and history, I assumed that this whole thing was historical. You know, that cloud, clouds have been named. Uh, there are some clouds up there that are obviously that are 20th century, like contrails, but they've been named as well. So I assumed the whole thing was a historical enterprise and I could write about it as though this was something that had come to an end. And how completely wrong I was. So in, in 2017, the new edition of the uh, International Cloud Atlas, produced every few years by the World Meteorological Organization, contained no fewer than 12 new cloud names, some of which had been proposed by individuals or by, by groups. And it's a really interesting process. Let's talk about the cloud form named Asperitas a name that comes from the Latin word meaning rough or roughened. How long did that take? This was first proposed by Gavin Pretopini, who founded the Cloud Appreciation Society um, a few years ago, which started off almost as a kind of, almost as a joke, really, <laughs> but it's gained traction as a very large, very uh, vibrant and active online cloud community, which has now got about something like 50,000 members around the world. Uh, and the, quite a few members of the Cloud Appreciation Society have submitted photographs of a very unusual cloud formation, which didn't have a name and which didn't really come under any of the current classificatory boundaries. So clouds, like other natural history um, phenomena, are classified in the Linnaean system under uh, genus, species, variety. So a genus like Humulus might have a species name like Humulus or, or um, Castellanus, the bigger ones. And then it would have a, a varietal name depending usually on visual aspects, like if it's got holes in it, you might call it lacunosus. Or if it's you know, reticulated like a net, you'd call it reticulatus and so on. So it's very descriptive. And although it sounds like a lot of Latin Actually, you don't need a classical education to really to get your head around the Latin terminology. And a lot of the roots share the same roots as, as words in English and other European languages as well. So you know, the word cumulus, for example, you know, it's the same root as the word accumulate to pile up. So a lot of it makes sense if you just spend a little, a little bit of time. But you can't just decide that an, a cloud's got a new name. You, you have to go through a process, and it's quite a long-winded, multi-agency process. So with Asperatus, for example, this was proposed to the Royal Meteorological Society. They took it to the meteorological department at the University of Reading. Somebody actually wrote a thesis about Asperatus. <laughs> I'm glad somebody got a thesis out of it. And then eventually, once the once the Royal Meteorological Society and 
a couple of um, you know, meteorologists have, have agreed that there is a case to be made for a new cloud name that it's sufficiently distinct, that it's sufficiently repeatable. You know, it's not just a one-off. It's something that happens under certain atmospheric conditions. Then they take that to the World Meteorological Organization in Geneva, and they will quite rightly spend a great deal of time, care, and attention assessing whether the world needs a new cloud name or not. In the case of asperitus, this was first proposed as an adjective, rough. So it's asperatus. Now, an interesting feature of the World Meteorological, or Meteorological Organization is that they employ a team of linguists, classic, classical linguists, mm. who will think about the linguistic appropriateness of the proposed words, as well as their meteorological appropriateness. And it took a year for the for the for the adjective <laughs> rough to be transformed to the noun roughness, asperat, asperitus. So now it is the, the asperitus is not a new cloud type, it's a new cloud descriptor for the underside of outer cumulus undulatus clouds, which are roughened in a certain way. Um, and the word asperitus derived from uh, a line in a poem by Virgil where he describes the effect of wind over a sea. He calls it asparagus roughened. Oh, like where it yeah. looks like cross-hatching. Exactly, yeah, yes. yeah. So, and that's what it looks like. I mean, clouds are very comparable to waves in lots of ways. I mean, you know, atmospheric fluid mechanics are quite comparable to liquid fluid mechanics in lots of ways. So it took, I think it took about eight years for the first idea of asperitus to be kind of to go through all of those various um, committees. The cloud feature Asperitas was adopted in 2017 under the genus Altocumulus. But are there any new proposals in the mix? Will we be able to spot new clouds in our skies? There is now a proposed a new cloud name currently mm -hmm. being proposed, mm -hmm. brand new one, which is going to be the idea is going to be supercilious. Which do you know what the Latin word supercilium means? Over something? It's the uh, eyebrow. eyebrow it's, yeah. Hence, it's the same root as the word supercilious. Mm -hmm. So a supercilious expression is with one eyebrow raised. Yeah. And there is a very particular kind of, of alpha cumulus or, or sometimes cirriform cloud that, that um, appears at very particular atmospheric conditions with air flows going down, quite, usually quite hilly or mountainous areas. But if you see the photographs online, you can really see that they do look like eyebrows. <laughs> so at the moment, it's in the early stages of proposal. Mm. Um, it may be that in eight or 10 years time, supercilium or supercilious or some variant of that word will be accepted by the WMO, but it'll take, it'll take years. The inclusion of new names is slow and also sporadic. For instance, between 1951 and 2017, there were no new cloud names. So some of the cloud names in 2017 that were added were naturally occurring cloud formations like the ones that, that appear above waterfalls. So that's cataractogenitus, such a wonderful mm. word, but a sort of, it's like Gilbert and Sullivan sort of feel to it, cataractogenitus. Yeah. But it's extraordinary that naturally occurring phenomena yeah. that um, people have witnessed and observed for thousands of years yeah. only just been named. 
mm. or at least officially named. I yeah. mean, they had unofficial names before. I mean, they used to be called Niagara Clouds, for example. And I'm sure that in other languages and in other places, they would have, they would have been names. words too. Mm. So there's a, there's a question about the kind of, there's a kind of cultural domination of scientific Latin, yeah. like, stampeding all over these other indigenous, indigenous, names, indigenous names. Do you ever wonder what Howard might have thought about the new varieties and species? I think he'd have been absolutely delighted. I think it's the hope of most scientists, surely, to see what they've laid down, built upon and go on and flourish and develop uh, long after them. So I think it, was always, it always would have been his hope that the, the system had been accepted. And then, of course, like any system in, in the sciences would go on to amend and change. One thing that he did, uh, be def he was defensive about, were attempts to translate the Latin cloud terms into English. There were a, a couple of attempts in the 19th century to abandon the Latin because it was too, considered too difficult for people to learn uh, and to use English or, you know, local languages uh, instead. And he, he really resisted and uh, argued against that. Um, but in terms of the, the new cloud classification, the new cloud names, I think he would have absolutely welcomed them. I mean, obviously, some of the cloud he never would have seen, you know, so aircraft contrail that we now call Cirrus uh, homogenitus. Uh, it, that's the only cloud type, really, that Luke Howard would never have seen. But I think he would have recognised it as a cloud. Howard remained an avowed enthusiast of weather till he died in 1864, at the age of 92. He regularly twice daily took weather measurements for 70 years, because of which he was appointed as a weather correspondent for a number of journals and monthlies. He really was a weatherman. The taking of twice daily weather records, which is something that he kept up for about 70 years of his life, and that fitted very neatly in with his religious ideas as well. You know, for him, it was, it was an act of devotion in some way. Uh, ritualistic. To, ritualistic, yeah. akin to prayer in some way, uh, an acknowledgement of you know, what he thought of as um, you know, the creation. And li for Linnaeus that was similar too. You know, Linnaeus famously referred to his system as a respectful ordering of God's creation. And it was the steady methodical daily collection of data that created reams of information that uncovered patterns. He was the first person to observe the phenomenon called the Urban Heat Island, uh, which he published in the monumental work called Climate of London. He observed that his records differed from those recorded by the Royal Society in the City of London, and he wrote, We find London always warmer than the country, the average excess of its temperature being 0.88 degrees Celsius. And for this reason, Luke Howard is recognized by the International Association for Urban Climates as the father of urban climate science. Howard was a scientist by instinct and by choice. And it was also a time when amateurs could herald the fundamentals of science. Unfortunately, today, there is a boundary being drawn between amateur and scientists. Called citizen science, you know, it's, it's called upon and can make valuable contributions as well, often in data gathering and in observations. But Luke Howard, I think, is, is one of the last of that generation of amateurs who really did make groundbreaking contributions to the development of their science. And by the time he died in 1864, that era had really come to an end. Before we end, I would like to leave you with a few lines from Goethe's poem in honour of Mr. Howard. 
To find yourself in the infinite, you must distinguish and then combine. Therefore, my winged song thanks the man who distinguished cloud from cloud. And with many thanks to Richard Hamblin and Margaret Burr for the time and walk through Luke Howard's London, Margaret will be leading a program of activities at Lordship Rec in Tottenham on 26th and 27th November. This is to celebrate the 250th anniversary of Luke Howard's birth. And this will also launch the park as the first official cloud appreciation park. You can find the details in text. And that's all. Thank you for listening. And here's to more sky gazing. Linnaean Society. The Linnaean Society. The Linnaean Society of, of London. 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 London.